Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. Got another podcast here. Um, based on some feedback that we've got, we're going to try a little bit different approach to this, including a couple of case scenarios. I think we've done that a few times now, and I think we're going to try and build that in more consistently. Before we get too far along, though, let's do some introductions, and uh, let's start with the two of you that aren't the primary podcast uh, victims, uh, students today. <laughs> I'm Stephen Doyle. I'm a third-year medical student from Rocky Vista. Uh, my name's Valentina. I'm also a third-year medical student from Rocky Vista. And we're just going to do a really quick teaser here. Valentina has set up a special guest uh, participant that we're hoping to have involved in the podcast later this week. So yep. stay tuned. <laughs> and last but not least... I'm Gio. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. And do you know what's coming? What is coming? Uh, you've listened to a couple of podcasts, <laughs> so that you know if you're the primary person to, in the podcast, you get to tell us a little bit more. I have to talk more about myself. Well, I'm from Miami, Florida. Um, loving my third year in rotation here with Dr. Roundy and the staff. As far as what I'm looking forward to doing in the future, as of now, something on the, along the lines of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or even psychiatry. Oh, wow. Yeah. It seems like you might have told me that that was in the differential, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> I... I Honestly, try to not get too caught up in that because you know, my, my primary job is do my best to make sure that I don't get in the way of you guys doing really well on your shelf exam, right? Right. I think you do a fair job of that. I, I try <laughs> to do a fair job of that. You guys are nodding. I don't know if you know this, but the podcast doesn't have a lot of visuals, so feel free yeah. to... Feel free to <laughs> chime in when yeah. you're not say something. All right, so let's... Uh, Stephen, you've got a case scenario for us, I think. I do. I hope this illustrates it well. So I guess put your thinking caps on and imagine this. <laughs> a 25-year-old woman is brought to the emergency, emergency department by her boyfriend after she cuts her forearms with a knife. She's had multiple visits to the emergency department in the past few months for her self-inflicted wounds. She claims that her boyfriend is the worst person in the world. She and her boyfriend have broken up 20 times in the past six months. She says she cut herself not because she wants to kill herself. She feels alone and empty and wants her boyfriend to take care of her. Her boyfriend claims that she is prone to outbursts of physical aggression as well as mood swings. He says that these mood swings last a few hours and vary from states of exuberance and self-confidence to states of self-doubt and melancholy. On ex examination, the patient appears well-dressed and calm. She has normal speech, thought processes, and thought content. And then the question would come up, what is most likely diagnosis? All right, so uh, if anybody read the name of the podcast, the, it shouldn't be that hard, right? <laughs> and one of the things we talked about, the principles that are tested in the podcasts, seem to revolve not as much around the diagnosis, but the associated facts that are important, right? Maybe risk factors or treatments. And so um, we're going to go ahead and throw in a second scenario, a second stem, so to speak. And between these two, we think it will help generate the room for discussion that we're hoping to have. All right, here's the second one. And this one might feel um, a little different. A 24-year-old male comes in for a sore throat. He confesses he sometimes induces vomiting to lose some weight so his girlfriend will like him more. Otherwise, all his vital signs and physical examination findings are normal. During the visit, he confesses he feels empty inside. He worries that his recent girlfriend would leave him if she knew how awful he is. Three days ago, he bought a new very expensive car and explains now he realizes it was an impulsive buy and doesn't know how he will pay for it. 
He begins crying and begs you to help him, saying, You're the only doctor who ever listens, really listens to me. Every doctor before you was horrible. I, I really like oh, no. the way you've kind of put some emotion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really <laughs> great. Good. Um, very well done. So, uh, how did we get to this diagnosis of borderline personality disorder? I know that one of the things that worries me a great deal when we talk about borderline personality disorder is that it seems to come with some stigma. It's not easy to treat patients that have borderline personality disorder. Um, th these patients seem to have a disproportionate amount of emergency room use, mm -hmm. hospitalizations, the cost of the system is very high, and often it's very frustrating because it feels like we're not terribly effective in addressing the features of this condition that, that drive those behaviors. So I wanna, I wanna take a step back. We, we've, the, the four of us, every, every group has a different pattern and you might be noticing that as you listen to the different podcasts. The pattern of this group has been sort of along the lines of case presentation, history of the condition, and then the, the deeper dive, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, about the condition, things that might be interesting, and then overall a summary of what are the important aspects or principles that are taught within the podcast that will help uh, get you a couple of those questions on the shelf exam. So let's let's go ahead and jump over to you, Valentina. You kind of right off the bat said, I want to do the history. Actually, I think yeah. you said I want to do something else, and then you said, no, I want to do the history. <laughs> and, and you seem to have a little bit of fun about that. We were talking about this earlier. Yeah. Tell, tell me what you learned. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I feel like every time I get to learn a little bit of the history behind something and it becomes a little bit more of a story, it just sticks a little bit better. So when I started looking at it, the first thing I could find that described something similar to borderline was an ancient Ooh, Greek, borderline personality there disorder, you go. Um, was with, um, in ancient Greece with uh, Eretaeus, I think it was pronounced, mm. and he described impulsive anger, melancholia, and mania, all within a single person. And that was the first kind of descriptor that went with there. And I, I thought I would include it just as a throwback to Stephen talking about melancholia as melancholia. one of the, <laughs> as one the of vials. The <laughs> there's nothing else that you learn from this podcast, it'll be melancholia. <laughs> and we do have a quick correction about the vials. We, we did put that correction in the text. Oh yeah. Um, but if you listen to the last podcast, uh, Stephen, update us what, what the error was that I made. Okay, so, let me see if I get it right. Um, black bile is is uh, the organs that are related to those ones that we're referring to. So there's four humors, and the four um, uh, organs that are related to each of those is for black bile, that's the spleen. For blue was phlegm, and I think that they said that one's the brain. They thought, I think mucus came from the brain or something. <laughs> and then the red one was blood, and they did the liver for that one, not yellow. And then the gallbladder is the yellow bile, and, yeah. and that was, the, I think, the difference that we had last time between the red and, and the yellow. Red is liver, and yellow is the gallbladder. And, and uh, you're very kind saying that the difference we had when it was me who made that mistake. <laughs> 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 Go ahead. Sorry about that, Valentina. Uh, oh, no problem. So then uh, if we jump to 1684 in Switzerland, uh, Theophilie Bennett, uh, Bonnet said that there, he used a descriptor of folie, maniaco melancholique which would be the same equivalent of like uh it's a madness with mania and sadness right like this melancholia again and then in 1921 
Kraepelin identified something that was he called an excitable personality, and that has some similar descriptors to borderline personality disorder. And then finally, in 1938, Adolf Stern, who was um, born in Hungary, and he was actually um, uh, a student of Freud, and he was psychoanalyzed by Freud in 1920, and he also fled to New York when he was seven years old, because in the 1930s there was a lot going on in Hungary. Um, and he basically described this condition that he said was on the borderline of schizophrenia. And at the time, uh, neuroses were something that was treatable with psychotherapy, but psychoses were considered untreatable. Um, that's kind of like the dementia precox of schizophrenia, something that's not really treatable. Um, so. It, it was kind of viewed with the stigma of if you were on the borderline of schizophrenia, then you didn't have a lot of treatment options. But in uh, 1960, Otto Kernberg came along and he said that it was more of a mood disorder, that you were on the borderline of affective mood disorder and not on the border of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But then I started looking more into Otto Kernberg because I thought it was kind of like some of the things that he was doing were kind of interesting as well. So he was born in Vienna in 1928, and he fled Nazi Germany, and he actually moved to Chile. And then he came to New York and worked at Cornell. But he ended up marrying a woman called Paulina Kernberg, who was a child, psycho uh, child psychiatrist at Cornell. And one thing that was r really cool about her was I noticed that she had a link on the, her Wikipedia page. So I ended up clicking her name. And it turns out that she was the psychiatrist that evaluated Elian Gonzalez. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now so, we have our New York tie. Yeah. yeah. And our Miami right. tie. Exactly. <laughs> and so I remember the story of Elian Gonzalez because when I was about the same age, uh, me and Elian are about the same age. And uh, one year when this was all happening over Thanksgiving, which is coming up, I uh, told my family, uh, I stood on a table and I told everyone the story of Elian Gonzalez as a six-year-old boy who was uh, survived on a boat and was saved by dolphins, which were also my favorite animal, and how he had this huge custody battle and ended up going back to Cuba, actually, um, in like 1999. Uh, but I just thought it was crazy that there were so many connections there. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I have a tough time uh, with uh, this picture of you being so excitable that you would jump up on the table <laughs> and, uh, and really? tell your family <laughs> what you do. Hey, listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, it just seemed like a really cool couple that were doing a lot of really great things. Uh, so at that time, uh, per, uh, borderline pers became a personality disorder, right? And then it started to become people started thinking of it that way. So then in the 1980s, the DSM-3 finally um, put borderline personality disorder there. And so people were really starting to think of other ways that it could be treated. Very, very cool. Now I want to check something. Did we have, was there somebody in the group that was going to find principles that are often tested about borderline personality disorder? Or is that a different uh, podcast was that something the three of you looked at or did we kind of skip that part today we kind of discussed it a bit this morning yeah. right mm -hmm. so so the diagnosis itself let's let's go to that and then based on the diagnosis the history and the case presentation let's talk about some principles that are tested and then and then I want to kind of take off down 
the rabbit hole. It's definitely <laughs> a rabbit hole. <laughs> that you found that was interesting to you, Gio. How does that sound? That sounds perfect. And I think you've mentioned that you have a mnemonic for us. Yes, I love my mnemonics. And the one for borderline personality disorder is perfect because the mnemonic is impulsive. So it's the I is for impulsive. The M is moody. You have paranoid under stress, unstable self-image, labile intense relationships, suicidal or self-harm. Then you have, what's the other I? Inappropriate anger. Um, vulnerable to abandonment, which is a big one. We'll see a lot on test questions. And then you have emptiness. All right, so run through those one more time. Yeah, so impulsive, moody, paranoid under stress, unstable self-image, labile intense relationships, suicidal self-harm, inappropriate anger, vulnerable to abandonment and emptiness. And you need five out of those to make the diagnosis. It seems like our, our patients with borderline personality disorder generally have a very difficult time engaging in, in what one of the articles you and I uh, read in preparation for this in harmonious interpersonal relationships. Yes. And and I think at the end of the day, that that might be a great way of describing this. I think uh, the case presentations spoke very highly to the challenges that the emotional liability brings oh, yeah. in, the, the, wait a minute, you're too close to me, you're too far away. How many times did they break up? Uh, 25? <laughs> they broke up 20 times yeah. in the past six months. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think sometimes maybe if you're if you're like me and you have a tough time remembering more than three letters in a mnemonic, yeah, um, that if there's something that makes it difficult to have a a harmonious interpersonal relationship, then that should start raising your antennae for, hey, this could just be borderline personality disorder. That is pretty unique because there's so much overlap with many other psychiatric um, disorders here. Mm-hmm. Tons of overlap. In yeah. fact, um, I don't know if you did this. One of the things that I did as I was reading the uh, the Cochrane meta-analysis or the Cochrane review mm -hmm. was there was a comment that there's so much overlap in, in these conditions between the personality disorders that even the most recent DSM-5 has this section tucked away at the end of the back of the book that I, I'm sure I looked at once and totally forgot afterwards mm -hmm. uh, about like jettisoning the entire system, right? Yeah. And uh, moving to dimensional-based symptoms that focus on maybe um, a couple of aspects of uh, personality, um, functionality, and now my mind is gone, but yeah. Yeah, it has these like core features to it that I thought were kind of interesting. And so we might even be jettisoning, jettisoning most of the personality disorders with the possible exception of borderline personality disorder. And it looks like even the ICD... 10 or 11 has already taken that step, right? So so big changes in this stuff. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, historically, it's been pretty difficult to tackle as far as use, what pharmacotherapy to use. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw anything on that, but um, the, the uh, medication usage has definitely changed over time. Yeah. It's kind of evolved with it and with our understanding of it. Um, as, as Valentina was saying, they kind of struggled with, uh, you know, it was neuroticism. It was this kind of mood disorder and then it was kind of psychotic at one point so how do you pin it down i think another thing is that it's there's a lot of comorbid um comorbidities with borderline personality disorder that you're ending up going to be treating those as well like eating disorders or um even just substance like substance yep. use and anxiety disorders and anxiety with it absolutely yeah and i think they'll like to tie those into test questions too i just want to point out that these are just really great comments and in fact one of the articles that 
that you shared with me talked about medication use in Spain. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so I think we were going to talk about test question principles generally. And, and before we go to Spain, yeah. on our, our little voyage in, yes. in our podcast here, we've been to Miami, New York, um, Chile. Dolphins, Chile, <laughs> Chile. Um, let's, let's go ahead and those principles. Let's, let's mention those. Yeah, so one uh, really big distractor for um, borderline personality disorder is um, the bipolar. So that's a really clear distinction. And in general, it's just um, you should consider bipolar first. And then if it doesn't meet the criteria for bipolar, at that point, I would start considering the personality disorders instead of the other way around. I agree. in borderline personality disorder, they get so moody and impulsive that you might think, oh, you know, they're manic. And you might yeah. lean towards bipolar. Yeah. What about uh, questions associated with risk factors? Are there, are there principles that seem to pop up with risk factors? And if so, what are those? Yeah, since uh, I think Stephen and I were discussing earlier, since a lot of borderline personality disorder patients can tend to be suicidal, um, they might tie that into um, risk factors. and. A uh, big one is history of abuse, whether that's f- physical or sexual or emotional. Those often pop up. That seems to be one of the most clearly identified risk factors that we, we talk about consistently. And I think one of the articles you and I looked at seemed to say that temporal lobe uh, changes might be an epigenetic effect of childhood trauma. Yeah, they saw that in, in both actually bipolar disorder and they saw that in borderline personality disorder. But um, I also was reading that you know childhood abuse is one of the most common risk factors for borderline personality disorder. Seems to be kind of popping up in a lot of different things. I think at some point we're going to have to figure out this, uh, have a podcast about ACEs, yeah. adverse childhood events. Mm. So that'll be something that, that hopefully somebody picks up in the yeah, future. Definitely. Other principles that are tested commonly with borderline personality disorder, I think... For all... For all the personality questions, personality disorder questions, they always will try to have you differentiate between the ones that are typically in the same cluster. So for um, for borderline, you have borderline history on personality disorder. I'm going to keep saying that. Personality <laughs> disorder. I, I, Can I, I we abbreviate BPD for now? BPD. Sure, BPD. It's kind of a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's I just wanted to say BPH. That's different <laughs> <No>. entirely. <laughs> totally different. Yeah. Also high yield for boards, though. It is. <laughs> um, so a big one for there is histrionic and personality disorders. Um, you'll find relationships are a problem for both both of these, for probably all three of these. Um, however, you'll see the histrionic, they do it to get attention on themselves. Dependent will do it because they can't make a decision. And then borderline personality disorder, you'll find it that, that they do it almost out of a sense of fear of abandonment. That's typically the underlying cause mm-hmm. of the whole thing. Good. And that's how I approach my, when I look at my questions, I'm like, What's the underlying, what, what, what do I see as them like struggling with? Are they scared of being abandoned? That's why they're breaking up and then coming back together. Break up, come back together. They're engaging in these uh, strange activities to, to try to fix that fear. I think that's a great point. Um, one of the things I think I've mentioned before is what's the function of the behavior, and you're speaking to that yes. directly. Yeah, what's the function of the behavior? And for each of those conditions, the function of the behavior is somewhat different. Um, Treatment, I think, is another issue that pops up or, or you will see. And I think the reality is um, there is uh, only psychotherapy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, so the issue is, do you know your psychotherapies and 
what are they? So, Gio, I think you dived into this just a little bit. Uh, tell me about treatments for borderline personality disorder. Let's start with psychotherapies, and then you found some interesting stuff about um, medication treatment. Yeah, so I guess the answer to that question, how do you treat borderline personality disorder on the shelf and boards, would be DBT. Mm-hmm. That's the, the go-to. Um, what does that stand for? Probably just so good, people yeah. say it. Yeah, DBT is Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And it's a multifaceted approach. It involves group skills training, individual therapy, team consults, and phone counseling. Phone coaching. Or phone it's coaching. A, it's a yeah. subtle difference, but they would say phone coaching. Yeah. And that, that means that um, the idea of, of the skills group is we're going to teach you mindfulness. We're going to teach you emotional regulation skills. We're going to teach you to stress tolerance so that when you do feel overwhelmed, you can manage it. We're going to teach you interpersonal effectiveness so that you can be less distressed about those fears of abandonment, less likely to feel that. And and then once those skills are learned, then the patient can say, hey, I'm having a particularly difficult time. Mm -hmm. And they can call in and say, hey, you know, help me figure out how to use my skills. So the coaching is a little bit different than the counseling and it follows the, the skills groups. So I'm just jumping. Yeah. I think you knew that already, though. Yeah, that's that's what's great about it, and it seems to be pretty effective um, overall. So I did find a study that kind of tested. It was focused on the mindfulness aspect and the interpersonal, um, what is it, interpersonal effectiveness. And so they put two groups into kind of a mindfulness group and then the interpersonal effectiveness group. Mm-hmm. But what the study really aimed at doing was trying to change um, the default mode network, which. It's basically, you know, when you're at rest, there are certain parts of the brain that are activated. And these are kind of tied to self-reflection, future planning. Daydreaming. Daydreaming, yeah, theory of mind. And it's postulated that uh, patients with PPD don't turn this off. And so I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, how does that make sense? And I was like, well, I guess, you know, if I'm self-reflecting or looking at, if you're looking at yourself in the mirror for too long, you might find something you don't like and you might have problems. But... So they put the patient into these two groups, the mindfulness group, interpersonal effectiveness. Um, and then as they ask them to do a certain task or perform you know, the uh, DBT for the mindfulness or the interpersonal effectiveness, they had functional MRI scanning going on. What they found was, there was they weren't able to affect any part of the default mode network, but they did find activation of the um, insula. And I think it's the left anterior insula specifically, which they attributed to, um, what is it, attention and high cognitive control. So they found that, and they found an overall increase in uh, BPD symptomatology, which was, which kind of speaks to the effectiveness of the therapy. They saw a decrease in overall symptomology. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, I think what I wanted to say was that it was effective. (laughs) Yeah, it it looked like it was. It was interesting to me. So there's, I've been brushing up a little bit on some of my evidence-based medicine Mm -hmm. approach. And I saw a very fascinating article that kind of said, hey, here's the history of evidence-based medicine. And the key of evidence-based medicine is just because we understand some physiological principle doesn't mean that that's actually a treatment, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what we were doing is sort of saying, well, we think that mindfulness probably affects the this uh, default mode network, the medial prefrontal cortex, posterior cingulate cortex, angular gyrus, and precuneus, is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Okay, and maybe some other areas. It seems like the yeah. that default uh, default mode network changed a little bit depending on the articles we were reading, but yeah. I had a tough time knowing the specific. 
I'm, I'm not a great neuroanatomist. In fact, it's I'm still a being lousy worked on. Yeah. neuroanatomist. Still <laughs> lousy that I am. Yeah, so it's still being, it still seems like there's a lot to be learned. Yeah. But the idea was we have a biological premise, and we think that because the default node, uh, mode network is hyperactive, mm-hmm. and we can imagine that there's been this change in uh, maybe that network with mindfulness, we're going to prove that we treat uh, borderline personality disorder with yeah. mindfulness. Well, what's more important is that mindfulness seems to be helpful than you know, this proposed mechanism, which is, doesn't look like there's a lot of fact in that mechanism. Is that kind of where you were left with the article? Yeah. After, yeah. after I read the review you sent us, you know, had me questioning you know, how effective was it overall. I'm sure we would love to find exact spot in the brain and says this is exactly where borderline personality disorder is. Well, they found about the three: the and frontal lobe, <laughs> hypothalamus. There's a couple. Yeah. So, so I was intrigued by the differences in these um, studies. So, the the network or the uh, article you were just talking about, this network article, came out of uh, Barcelona. This was uh, Hospital de Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. Santa Creu. Uh. Creu. Um, and so it was, um, the, these two of the articles you sent me were from the same group. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they're, what they have is this hospital where referrals come from at least some sort of large area and anybody that has borderline personality disorder can come and be treated at this center free of charge. And they have diagnostic interviews and so forth. And there's really some very good data about what this very difficult to treat group of patients with borderline personality disorder look like, right? Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more too. Yeah. Well, just to add, uh, since we're, we were kind of still in that study, it was self-reported though at the end, but they found improvement in it, the impulsivity, um, acceptance, and non-judging aspects of the personality trait, which they relate to, you know, a lot of the issues with uh, BPD, like anger and ruminating and having dysfunctional relationships. All right, we're going to do something we normally don't do and put a pause in here. Hang on. All right, we got paged and stepped back to the conversation. We'll see how this goes. I'm not sure I've got... Exciting day at work. Yeah, (laughs) it's always an exciting day. Apparently, uh, some forms of lithium don't go through a feeding tube, but we'll figure that out, right? where were we? You were back at uh, in Barcelona, I think. Yeah, just kind of summing up some of the findings that, and then although, you know, it was self-reported at the end that the, the uh, patients with BPD improved in their impulsivity, acceptance, and their kind of judgmental state. Yeah. I, I, I think the thing that surprised me most is that I really hadn't read about this default mode network before. I mean, I've uh, seen it before, but I didn't understand it in the least, so I'm like, Oh man, I gotta finally <laughs> read about neural networks and try and understand this stuff so that I don't, you know. It was a throwback for me. I uh, did a little bit of cognitive neuroscience in undergrad, and it's like, man, I haven't seen this since then. I wonder what's changed, and I don't really remember what's changed to be honest. <laughs> so much has <laughs> so happened since ago. then. <laughs> the thing that surprised me the most is that um, I, I guess as little as about a hundred years ago, the guy that was developing EEGs said, hey, we think there's a lot going on in the brain when you're not focused on the task. And everybody Mm -hmm. said, what? (laughs) What are you, dumb? (laughs) And then pretty soon we figure out that when we do a task, we only increase metabolism by about 5%, right? In other Mm -hmm. words, there's a lot going on on in the brain all the time. And it's kind of a fascinating idea to me of how do you like maybe slow down some circuits, speed up some circuits, and yes. kind of have that be a treatment. And I, I think um, 
maybe Valentino, it was you and I that talked before about neurons that wire together, fire together. Candel. Mm-hmm. Candel um, and, and that kind of idea of, of psychotherapies having uh, neuronal strengthening implications in the end. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I would like it to be, and you just said metabolism, and that leads into the other study that we have. So this study <laughs> looked at fMRI, and now we're going to go to PET, PET right? PET scan, yep. All right, talk to us. So they scan patients with, like a, I guess, a TAGS, a glucose marker, and put them through the PET scan, and ultimately what they found, and also this was comparing bipolar disorder 2 and BPD, and so a lot of areas um, in both diseases were had decreased metabolism, but that's for, I guess, another podcast. And, and for BPD specifically, they found decreased activity in the insula, which we just spoke about, and they also have decreased activity in the hypothalamus, which I looked a little bit more into, and I looked at a meta-analysis that um, kind of just scanned over all of the studies that used MRI, and hypothalamus keeps coming up for BPD, and it's associated with the, in, the intense anger that they feel. I think that the... The, the thing that I didn't know after I read the article, and maybe you saw something more, it looks like there may be some hormonal aspects of that, so testosterone changes yes. and oxytocin changes, right? Yeah. Oxytocin too low, testosterone too high. Yes. Um, there's, was there something else? There's some kind of disconnect, apparently, with the physiological response and the um, kind of the psychological response here. Um, that's, I think, what they're trying to tackle down. Um, but... I don't know too much. I didn't see too much more about that. But what I did see that made me think of Valentina was that there was an overall frontal white matter reduction in BPD. And so it's like, hey, myelin, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> so did you just do, you did raise the roof. So we're, we're, I'm, doing color, I'm doing color commentary now on the actions that my students are doing because they, they are making this fun. Yeah. I, I know. I'm very excited. Later this week, we'll hear more about, you know, white matter and schizophrenia. But I just stopped white and wondered, like, white depression, white matter schizophrenia. Yeah, you know, and if it is on the border of schizophrenia, and <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't take a lot more from that article. It felt like that article was kind of like it. It it went into the weeds. It went down the rabbit hole. There was a lot of data presented. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a little bit of a difficulty with. Uh, and I don't remember which article it was, but it's it's difficult to find that many patients and then to have them consent, then have them remain in treatment, and then have the MRI. So so this is, um, I think the Cochrane article would say that one of the problems we have with borderline personality disorder is that our numbers are still not great. It's mm-hmm. difficult having randomized controlled tr- uh, data. In fact, um, even the Cochrane article, or the Cochrane uh, summary, um, essentially said, well, it looks like psychotherapy is... It's- Probably yeah. helpful, yeah. And you know the, these very, very st- statements weren't they weren't strong. And the mm-hmm. I think the way that they're phrasing that, which is a language that I think is different than when I first started reading the EBM stuff, I think it said essentially that we think that additional data, better quality studies, might change our view on this, whether it's helpful or not, or more helpful, mm-hmm. right? So, so right now our best guess is that DBT and one other therapy. There's um, some pharmacotherapy use. The other psychotherapy. So there were 16 psychotherapies oh, the, that uh, the, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's not mind-based therapy. Mentalization. Was it mentalization? The TAU. Treatment of, as usual is the TAU. Oh. And then I think MBT was mentalization-based therapy. 
Um, and I didn't write it down, but I, th I think that's what it is. And that's yeah. something that was starting to come but out. It won't be the board answer. No, it won't. <laughs> DBT is the board answer. Yeah. But even with all of the psychotherapies that have been done, mm -hmm. 16 kinds, all of the, all of the papers that uh, the Cochrane group felt like were appropriate for inclusion into this analysis, that's still only about 4,500 participants. And, and roughly a third of those drop out of most therapies, right? Roughly. I saw that, yeah. Attrition was a problem with the, a lot of these studies. Yeah. And some bias and selection bias. Yeah. So it kind of still leaves us, you know, what do we do with BPD? <laughs> and, I, and I think the answer is for now, our best guess is um, DBT and the harm from DBT seems very low, right? And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that Cochrane's very invested in is looking at the benefit harm ratio. Yeah. Another article uh, that you sent to me, I remember distantly when these uh, APA guidelines came out in 2001 for borderline personality disorder, what they said essentially, if I recall correctly, was if you see somebody that has mood symptoms, you give mood medications. If you see somebody with borderline psychosis, you give antipsychotic medications. If you see somebody with anxiety, you give anti-anxiolytics. Yep. Um, and probably avoid benzos, I think was what it said. Mm -hmm. But um, that's not universal, it looks like. No. It looks like maybe if you look at the guidelines that have evolved since, the NICE guidelines, or maybe it's the NICE guidelines, I don't know, they come out of uh, Great Britain, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so they're, they're the guidelines center for England, and they, they have said that you only treat comorbid conditions, and, and by the way, Stephen, you mentioned how high the comorbidity was, yeah. right? Especially, especially among major depressive disorder and, and substance use. Major uh, so it's coexisting with major depressive disorder and substance use disorders. Um, eating oh, disorders, anxiety eating disorders, disorders yeah. as well. But the, the big two were the major depressive and, and the suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, sorry, substance use disorder. I was going to say, with uh, we didn't talk about this too much, but BB, BPD has a huge risk of, of suicide um, mm -hmm. that I think we really got to be careful of. And because it's also with major depressive disorder, if you want to treat with the SSRI, you gotta be really careful within the first couple of weeks because that will increase the, the it's a risk factor. It's, it's within the package insert, right? So yes. the, the, there is this large warning inside a black box. I think the language is changing. They don't want us to use black boxed warning anymore, uh -huh. but it's a warning and it says, hey, there's an increased risk of suicide associated with these, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, at least early on in treatment. I think the implication is you see your patients early and often and that's fairly well spared, spelled out now. Mm -hmm. um, I think the article we looked at in terms of addressing or, or evaluating polypharmacy said mm -hmm. that only 10% of the patients roughly didn't have comorbid conditions. Yeah, very few. Very few. Yeah, so, uh, but onto what Stephen was saying, I just wanted to add that antidepressants are actually the most commonly prescribed medications worldwide because the Spain study compared uh, what they had to the UK, the US, Europe. I did also look at a study in Germany and they all looked at what's been changing over the last 20 to 15 years or so. And basically, you know, in the beginning, they were kind of just trying uh, TCAs and benzos even. Mm -hmm. And women were actually found to be more commonly prescribed benzos. Maybe they were with the more anxious symptomatology. And men were actually more often prescribed antipsychotics. But mm -hmm. um, over time, the TCAs and benzos have trended downwards. And now atypical antipsychotics are what's mostly being prescribed for BPD. And that's interesting because even even though the United States guidelines say, well, it's okay to use them, even though the NICE guidelines says only use them for mm -hmm. 
comorbid Exodus 1. Um, the later guidelines, uh, the Dutch guidelines, the German guidelines, the Cochrane reviews seem to say, well, it looks like maybe there's some benefit to certain symptom clusters. Mm -hmm. There's not even a lot of um, agreement over that. And even the Aussies, the Spanish, and the Danish uh, guidelines say no medications, right? Which is very interesting that this article out of Spain showed, uh, what was it, the uh, median number of medications was three? Yeah. So, so even where there, the guidelines say no medications. There's actually over-prescribing, or overuse. sorry, I should say. Or, or I, I, I've, I've been hesitant with that because I, I suspect that when you get into a place where you're desperate, you're trying to do anything to help somebody. Exactly. Yeah. And, and whether that's a good decision or not is you know, a, a different debate. But um, I, I would say that the evidence is not there for the use rather than... Uh, and that the better conclusion is that guidelines aren't followed. And I think the reason they're not followed is because the evidence doesn't suggest that uh, about a third of the patients can't tolerate the treatment, they can't stay in it. There's not a tremendous amount of evidence, even though DBT is the answer and it looks like the best thing going. Mm -hmm. There's not a tremendous amount of evidence that this is the solution for borderline personality disorder consistently and in a way that dramatically changes the illness course. It does seem to reduce symptomology fairly consistently and it looks like there's probably some safety measures built in um, advantages based on what the Cochrane Review said. Mm -hmm. But being as there's not a silver bullet, it makes sense why we're not really tight on the guidelines, I think. Yeah, I was reading that there are no clear definitive guidelines for it. There's just some drugs that were happen to be effective in treating um, certain symptoms. You know, I saw Lamotrigine um, not being used as often as it should be because it did improve mood symptoms, and they even were talking about omega-3s being um, helpful for mood symptoms. And I saw some mentioning of like aripiprazole for the antipsychotics and ketiapine. Yeah. So, so again, I think this is all based on small case series. I mm -hmm. think the lamotrigine case series might have been might have been originally a case series and then a randomized controlled trial, but still very very limited amounts of information about any pharmacotherapy. Mm -hmm. And you know, the best things going are the psychotherapies, and, and even those, we're still not. There, there's still the possibility that more evidence or better evidence could change our mind about that. Yeah. Um, where are we at now? Do we want to go down a, a short rabbit hole? Yes, because we'd love to. she mentioned Chile earlier and made me raise my eyebrow because I was looking at a Chilean study that they found um, a mutation in the serotonin transporter CERT, S-E-R-T, mm -hmm. uh, directly, well, not directly tying, this is me just wanting to find something <laughs> really cool, but they uh, were relating it to the neuroticism um, and patients had a stronger um, symptom symptomatology of BPD and especially neuroticism when they had this certain um, mutation in the serotonin transporter. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I think one of the challenges, we've, we've talked about uh, schizophrenia being more like a common final pathway where we have a lot of different uh, symptoms that seem to overlap somewhat, but we think there's probably a lot of different schizophrenia illnesses that are all just kind of grouped together now, right? And I, I'm wondering, as you're talking about this, we, we now are talking about uh, neuronal symptoms systems that seem to vary between uh, people that have borderline personality disorder and those that don't mm -hmm. and maybe differences in some of the genes whether the genes are the cause of the uh, neuronal system changes or not I think is hard to know at this point but I have a hunch we'll find yeah 
a couple of types of borderline They're speculating uh, genes are 40% uh, likely to be the cause. Absent trauma or in conjunction with trauma? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, very quickly, uh, I want to hear the mnemonic one more time, impulsive. Impulsive, which is impulsive, moody, paranoid under stress, unstable self-image, labile, intense relationships, um, where was it? Where was it? Uh, suicidal, trying to do it from memory. And um, self-harm. Self-harm, yep. And then it's inappropriate anger, vulnerability to abandonment and emptiness. Very, very well done. Uh, high yield principles for being tested. Impulsive. DBT. Uh, suicide attempt. Abandonment. Yes. Mm -hmm. And with suicide, if you have a history of suicide attempts, that increases your risk of suicide the next time. Mm -hmm. um, more, more than anything it's else. The, yeah. the, the one thing that might be more than anything else is substance misuse. And that's substance one that's hard for me to kind of sort out because I, I once looked at something that said most suicides have a substance on board. Like alcohol, you mean? Alcohol, benzodiazepines, opioids. Yeah. And the challenge I think that, that we have in kind of knowing if that's a bigger risk factor than a previous suicide is the fact that um, we can't always know if there's an intentional overdose in those or if intoxication is a proximal factor. That's, mm -hmm. that's not always easy I to see, sort yeah. out. But, yeah. but substance misuse would be another big factor. And again, the comorbidity screams at us here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, take homes, not, not uh, test principles. Well, I, I think in looking more into... Um for me, I looked into the history of borderline personality disorder, and I think one thing that was, I realized how much stigma was behind it, and um, in learning more, hopefully this podcast made you think of borderline personality disorder more like any other personality disorder or any other mental illness, that it's not, it's a mental illness and you can't, um, not, or hopefully you won't want to not treat someone because of that or treat them any differently than any other of your patients and can be a little kinder because of it. I really like that. Yeah. In fact, yeah. you kind of stole where I was hoping to go. Well Me done. Too. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I'm gonna, sorry. I was going to go off, you know, be patient with these kinds of patient patients. Huh? Um, because this is, I mean, just reading about it, it's kind of just a wild beast of, of symptoms. It's, yeah. it's, you know, just very detrimental, volatile, and... One of the things that's very interesting to me, Gio, and I'm, I'm going to like throw you this kind of question that you would have no idea on how to prepare for, okay? So just be ready. Before you got here, um, I think it's easy for a lot of my students to think that people that have schizophrenia, you know, they kind of ask for it, so to speak, right? And then when you get here, you're like, oh my God. Gosh, does that sound familiar at all? It does. It sounds very familiar. And and within like three days of working with people that have severe and persistent mental illness like schizophrenia, that just is totally replaced with compassion. Absolutely. I, I like how we phrased it one day. We were talking about it and, you know, we um, there's humanity. You know, we find the humanity in it. And, um, and you really see how it's it really comes down to life circumstances and where you are lucky enough to start out in life and who, you, who you're surrounded with. All those risk factors, all the genetics, all of those things, and, and yeah. instead Gio is now at uh, medical school in his third year, sitting across a Yeti microphone, um, being tormented by me, <laughs> as opposed to 
you know, hearing voices that he can't, mm-hmm. you know, tell is real, or having this autonomic surge. I think that's one of the papers kind of alluded to the fact that maybe the circuitry might set somebody up for this autonomic surge that would be mm-hmm. almost impossible to manage, right? Uh, in borderline personality disorder, and you know, uh, but for the grace of God, there go I. I think is a pretty appropriate phrase for all of this, since I, I can't think that anybody chose the. Uh, neglect the childhood emotional mm-hmm. and physical abuse that seems to be common with this condition or the absolute inability to regulate those emotions right it's not like people want this right and and I think you know speaking to both your points um, when you when the person is borderline which is why I jumped in right as opposed to the person has borderline personality disorder and you're fighting that with your patient right you're you're, you're a team member with the person against that challenge. It's a different world and I think the burnout is a lot less. And I think, you know, just like you're saying, if you can kind of step back and say, wow, you know, I, I didn't realize that there was horrible physical and sexual abuse on mm. so many of these patients. I didn't realize that, you know, they're trying their hardest to just manage this, but it's out of their control until they have, you know, until we have better strategies and, and therapies, right? So I, I like those points very, very much. Yeah. Did you have anything to add to that, Jill? Nope. Steven? Um, I think I want to to say that a lot of these personality disorders and psychos- psychotic disorders and mood disorders that we're talking about, they we come up with like 5% for borderline personality disorder, somewhere in there. 1% for schizophrenia. So when we hear those low percentages, we're like, ah, we're never going to see that. But when you see 100 patients, you're going to see five borderline personality disorders and probably around you know one or more. Schizophrenia, a person with schizophrenia, because they are, they might have something else that might lead them into your office. Yeah. So, I, I would just just say like, always keep this in the back of your head that you're going to find people like this, and they need your empathy, and they you need to, you know, remember how to help them and keep them uh, back to a normal living. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, I, I have learned, I think, over time that some physicians end up, um, I think some physicians, sorry, that's the third phone call. I think we've gone like 30 podcasts (laughs) without having a phone call. And to all of you that made it through this podcast with some strange clicks and beeps along the way, we appreciate your uh, patience. Um, I've noticed that that maybe even a little different than what you're saying. I mean, if you're just taking all people that come to you, you'll have those kinds of percentages over time, right? Assuming that you have a pretty standard practice. My experience is somewhat different in that the physicians that really have this uh, great personality about them that are able to understand, I I think, more intuitively than I did until I spent time here, that it's an illness and that the patients truly need help as opposed to I told this person this once before, right? They can't seem to learn it. And then you start looking at the insula and, the, yeah. the, and <laughs> right? Um, it, those, those physicians end up having much higher percentages of patients that feel really comfortable with them. And I think that um, a physician that cares deeply about their patients not suiciding and that group of patients being potentially underserved Right and and cares about that group of patients. I think that those percentages would change quite a bit, and, and at least that's my experience. You see those change, uh, guys. What a what a wonderful ending. I, I just really appreciate first of all how much you guys are doing on the unit, the way that you care about my patients, and I really appreciate the way you guys are tackling these topics and 
and teaching me some really, really cool things. I'm looking forward to Friday. Um, that's me. That's you. Well, I'm Friday. You're Thursday. I'm, Friday. I'm Thursday. Okay. I'm yeah. looking forward to Thursday, too. <laughs> um, you know, if Thursday doesn't happen, you can't hold that one against me, okay? I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, really looking forward to the pending podcast that we've got coming up and, and really appreciate the, the direction you took me on this, um, uh, Gio, because it, it's some areas that I think were I, I didn't have a good enough grasp on. And it's always nice to have students say, no, I, I'm not interested in learning what you already know. I, I'm kind of interested in this, and we're going to go this way. Here's the articles, and I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, it. It helps me make sure that I don't focus on the things I already know, but try and learn something that's new, and I, I can thank you. On that note, guys, team out. Team, team out. out.